Welcome to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright. And today, I have the great pleasure of being joined by two co-hosts. I'm Grant. And I'm Jocelyn. Grant and Jocelyn are here to help me out with Richard Strauss's Zolome, based on the biblical story. And both of you have done a little study in that area, I believe. Jocelyn is an extremely accomplished student, and I am really good with a spreadsheet. <laughs> Well, that's going to be that's going to be helpful. Regular listeners to Opera for Everyone will know that Grant has helped us out with a lot of our Opera for Everyone shows in the past and we welcome Jocelyn as a first-time contributor. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So, there's a lot to say in terms of the historic context of this story and the historic context of the production of this opera. But let's start by setting the scene of the story being presented so that we can go back and listen to a little more music right in the beginning. Our story begins in the realm of Herod Antipas, in the time of Jesus and John the Baptist. And this is the Herod who features so prominently in the story of the end of Jesus's days on earth? Yeah. So like many royal lines, they liked to call their sons the same name that their fathers had and their grandfathers had and their grandfathers for grandfathers. And so there were a lot of people named Herod in this dynasty. Yes. And in fact, quite a few of the women were named Herodias, the feminine form, just to maximally confuse everybody. Herod the Great is maybe the most famous in the Christmas story. Herod the Great has conversations with the Magi or the wise men on hunting out Jesus and trying to find the baby. And then there's Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is a tetrarch, which is to say the kingdom, as, as the Romans became more powerful, they divided the kingdom into four pieces. And he's a tetrarch, a ruler of a fourth. And so bit by bit, the local rulership is getting weaker and weaker, and the Romans are taking over more and more power. This is why the other guy was Herod the Great, and this is not. So uh, Herod the Not-So-Great. <laughs> we find ourselves in the court of Herod the Not-So-Great. Also in this court, Herod Antipas has married Herodias, who was originally married to his brother. Do we open on these two characters, Herod and Herodias? We open on the courtyard outside of Herod Antipas's palace. And outside, we have the guard. And these guards are chatting up a storm. <laughs> what else are you going to do when you're standing around guarding? Well, the other thing you can do, of course, is to find a fixation find a fantasy when your job is to stand around a lot people's minds wander and they create stories or imagine fantasies and this guard narrowboat he imagines what it would be like if the princess were in love with him the princess in this case is salome salome is the daughter of herodias not the daughter of Herod Antipas, but his brother. And Salome, as seen by these guards looking up at her, is their object of desire. And the voice we heard right in the beginning, singing, that is the soldier Narabot saying, my, doesn't the princess Salome look beautiful tonight? Yeah. 
eine kleine Prinzessin, deren Füße weiße Trauben sind. Man könnte meinen, sie tanzt. Eine Frau, die tot ist, sie gleitet langsam
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and this is Zalame by Richard Strauss. And that voice you've just heard is Jochenan, or better known to us as John the Baptist. And Jocelyn, I must say, I enjoyed hearing those harps playing when we heard John's voice from his subterranean location. Salome is telling the story of daughter of Herodias or stepdaughter of King Herod Antipas. And outside King Herod Antipas's court is his prisoners. John the Baptist is held as a prisoner of this court. And in this opera, this is depicted by having John the Baptist in a, in a well, in a cistern. Why is John the Baptist imprisoned in Herod's palace? John the Baptist was harshly critical of the whole Herodian line. Part of this had to do with the relative legitimacy of the Herodians, who had come to power by collaborating with the Roman occupiers. But part of this had to do with the specific moral failings of the Herodian dynasty. One of the things that John the Baptist was particularly upset about was the fact that the dynasty had become so incestuous. Inbred, really, right? Yes. And part of this had to do just with the high level of paranoia that infected the whole dynasty. That their subjects didn't like them because they were helping out the occupiers. And the Romans didn't really trust them either because they would rather be ruling the whole place directly. And so... So you're not really paranoid if no one likes you and they're out to get you. (laughs) But as paranoid people frequently do... The Herodians had a way of making their own problems worse by resorting to terrifying means. Herod the Great famously executed his wife and several of his children. Oh, he's the one you were calling great. Yeah. Okay. Great doesn't always mean, you know, great. Hmm, might mean powerful. So Jocelyn, tell us a little bit more. So here we find John the Baptist held captive by Herod Antipas for all of these ways that he is disrupting the territory. And one of the things that we have many accounts of John the Baptist saying is that no king, no ruler, no tetrarch is as great as one who is coming. He says, prepare the way. And he's talking about Jesus. So here in this bit of the opera that we have just heard, John says, After me shall come another one far mightier than I. I'm not worthy to unfasten the buckle upon his shoe. He is referring to Jesus. And this is really threatening. Right. It sounds like a political move to overthrow the established power, which is Herod. And he gets thrown in a well because of it. Right. And yet at the same time, he's enormously popular with the common people which puts Herod in this funny situation where he really kind of wants to be rid of this guy who's been saying all these nasty things about him and saying that someone else is going to come who's going to mess things up even worse. Yeah. (laughs) But at the same time, John is so popular and regarded by so many as a prophet that he can't just execute him. And so what he does is he throws him in the bottom of a well where hopefully his mad prophetic ravings can't get to anyone anymore. So it's too, it would be too dangerous to execute him 
Exactly. I mean, here we have even the soldiers guarding the well, fearing him, saying, oh, but he's a holy man. He's a prophet. Like, oh, well, we we can't do anything about this. We shouldn't mess with him at all, though. Yeah. So I believe up at this point, we have the entrance of a very important character in this opera. The title character, Zolome, will emerge from the banquet that's being held out onto the terrace where all the soldiers are. Yes, Salome leaves her stepfather's court frustrated and annoyed at the way that he is looking at her. And she walks out to this courtyard where the well is holding John the Baptist, and she is going to find him quite fascinating. Ich will nicht hineingehen. 
to Opera for Everyone, and this is Richard Strauss's Salome. I'm here with Grant and Jocelyn, helping me through this dense, biblically-based story. Shalom. Tell us more. So we have just heard Salome walk out into the courtyard of her stepfather, King Herod Antipas's courtyard. She needed a breath of fresh air. (laughs) She was overdone by the... uh, way that her stepfather was looking at her and the political conversations happening inside and this young woman maybe 16 kind of teenage girl needed to get out and and be herself but she gets away from the gaze of her stepfather and instantly all the soldiers particularly the captain of the guard they are all staring at her now fascinated by her so she walks out and she's kind of holding her own court outside and she sees that there is a prisoner in the well and she hears him call out and he sounds fascinating this is john the baptist and as he calls out she says well i would like to know a little bit about him hmm all i know is that my stepfather is afraid of him and I think he might be saying bad things about my mother. And she asked the soldiers about this. and Yeah, and they say, they say <laughs> he just, he talks a lot, princess. We, we don't understand a word he says. <laughs> they, are, they are not going to get in the middle of that. <laughs> so she starts to say, well, I would like to talk to him. You know what the soldiers say? We are not going to get in the middle of that. We don't have permission to let you right. see him. No, um, no, no, no thanks. He's nothing but trouble. Nothing but trouble. But I understand one of the soldiers has a motivation for doing what she says. Well, it's that chap who was dreaming of being with the princess. Yes, Narrowboat. Mm. He's, he's in love with the princess or something like love. And so he is helpless to do anything other than what she demands, even though he fears the Tetrarch, even though he fears the prophet. Mm. And Salome is uh, smart enough to know that she can use her feminine wiles to work her way to what she wants by flirting with Narabut a little bit. You know, that's an interesting comment because I think one of the things that happens to the character during the course of this story is she learns more and more and more about her own femininity, her own sexuality. Mm. In this story, she's meant to be a 16-year-old girl. So she's very womanly looking and everyone's looking at her that way. But she develops during the course of the story to get more in touch with the grown-up woman in her. And and she's almost a little childlike, or certainly going with teenage fancies in the beginning here. Oh, absolutely. And I think as she's learning that and playing with that and seeing kind of the boundaries of that, she is also caught up in being a princess. She, unlike most of us, as we figure out who we are and who we're supposed to be in our teenage years, we don't have hordes of guards and large numbers of people wanting to be around. And leering us. stepfathers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And so she has to navigate her wants and desires in the midst of this sea of being wanted and desired. Oh, yeah, that's a great way to think about it. And so Narabot brings up the prisoner and Salome looks at him and is enraptured. Oh, 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 oh,
so that vaguely scary sounding man is John <laughs> the Baptist. And he is, as you can tell, quite cross about how everything is going. He is speaking the way that prophets speak. In fact, a whole bunch of his lines are directly or indirectly cribbed from things that are said in the books of prophecy or in Revelation and the Bible. But what's happening here is that there's two levels to what he's saying and one level on which Salome is interpreting him. He is oh. talking about wrong and particularly sexual wrong, particularly incest. So he's criticizing Salome's mother. Yes, and in fact, father and in fact, general family. But at the same time, what he's doing is talking about his broader message, about the way that this society has become corrupt, that this society has lost its integrity and its morality and its sense of right and wrong. Nobody ever wants to hear what the prophet has to say, do they? <laughs> oh, certainly not. And even Salome, who is quite taken with him at this point, says yes. that he is terrible, truly terrible. Which makes everyone else try to get her away from him. All of the guards, the captain of the guard who's in love with her, Narabo. The one who went ahead and brought him up out of the well mm -hmm. so she could talk to him. Yep. He's not so comfortable with his decision anymore, is no, he? No, and he really tries <laughs> to get Salome to leave, but that's not working. She's very strong-willed. And used to getting her way, as a princess is. Yes. So finally, John the Baptist says, Who is this girl? <laughs> like, who is this woman looking at me? And we will, we will hear a little bit of her answer.
meinem Schleier Strohe Asche auf deinen Kopf Mach dich auf in die Wüste Und so listening to opera for everyone and this is Richard Strauss's Salome. So we've had a little bit of time to listen to some of our characters initially but I want to talk a little bit about the creation of this opera because Richard Strauss did not just read the Bible and create this story. He relied on layers and layers of people who had examined this story. The original inspiration is the story in the Bible but tell me Grant and Jocelyn, both of you who've, du- who've studied the Bible so much. Salome, I heard, is not even mentioned by name in the Bible. Right. So the name Salome does not appear in either the Gospel of Matthew or Mark where this story happens. The daughter of Herodias is how she is referred to in the text. And she is most famous for the culmination of this opera, the, the pieces that happen at the very end. So all of this stuff that we're getting at the beginning and in the middle is what we call extra biblical, like outside the biblical text. (laughs) Extra biblical? Like fan fiction? (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) And Strauss actually is pulling it from a play, an Oscar Wilde play, actually. Mm. Yes, a play of the same name, which has quite a history. Oscar Wilde originally wrote this play and had it published in both French And then in English, he wrote it in French, and he wrote it in English. Even Oscar Wilde, who was the immediate inspiration for Strauss in creating this opera, he's influenced by the general 19th century fascination with this story of Salome. And her story is told lots of ways and even depicted in over 150 drawings, watercolors, paintings by Gustave Moreau in the late 19th century by Gustave Flaubert in his story Herodias that's part of his Three Tales collection. But the impact of Oscar Wilde's play, it was scandalous, it was enticing, people loved it. At the same time, it was also banned a lot of places. London banned its premiere for over 40 years. And we are just about to reach the part of the opera where we start to see this scandalous nature, this countercultural twist that instead of this being some romantic story of how Salome has unrequited love with John the Baptist while he's held prisoner, we start to see a fanatical obsession with him. And the way that this turns becomes sexual and violent. And in the play that inspired this opera, that made a lot of people really uncomfortable. And it set the stage for the opera's premiere to make a lot of people uncomfortable. It's true. 
When this opera was being composed, Strauss, along with support from his good friend Gustav Mahler, hoped to have its premiere in Vienna. And the authorities in Vienna said, not no no thank you we don't want that kind of smut on our opera house stage so this this opera ultimately sees its premiere in Dresden in 1905 only two years after Strauss had seen the German translation and production in Berlin of this Oscar Wilde play and I should mention because I haven't named a librettist yet that's because really it's Oscar Wilde's German translation of the play that Strauss himself takes and makes his libretto. He just cuts out between a third and a half of the lines and uses the German version of Oscar Wilde's own work. That's wild. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Grant. It's said that when it was first premiering, not all opera stars wanted to sing it. Some of the sopranos who were tapped to play Salome would refuse. Based on the fact that There's the Dance of the Seven Veils, that infamous dance that she does to satisfy some of the desires of her lecherous stepfather, and the final scene, which we'll talk about later. Spoiler alert. (laughs) It's worth mentioning, after all this concern about offending people and all the places that it was banned, at the 1905 premiere in Dresden, this show received 38 curtain calls. Wow. It, this, was, this was the breakout hit for Strauss. This is the huh. hit This is the hit that catapulted him into the top echelon of composers. He even said that this was the opera that bought him his villa in Garmisch. <laughs> and it's funny because it's not the one that I would say we remember him for today. No, but it, it grabbed a lot of attention. This is the first big success. His, his other great works are yet to come. Mm. Rosen Cavalier has not yet been created. Electra has not yet been created, and their works are still to come. But here is where he takes charge of the libretto himself. Later, he will have a very fruitful partnership with Hugo von Hofmannsthal for many of his other great operas. But at this point... 1905, it plays briefly in Dresden. It's a huge success. And within two years, it plays in over 50 cities. And it's kind of that piece of that piece of culture that everyone wants to see and experience because there's so much buzz about it. In fact, one critic said after the Dresden premiere, our opera house has not seen a sensation with such an important impact since Wagner's last works. You must go and see it if you want to be part of today's discussions about the latest music and the highest artistic performance. So there's a, there's a you want to be in the know element about this particular work. And it's worth just briefly mentioning that Strauss originally, in his very young creative years, does work at Bayreuth with Wagner. Huh. So he's influenced a little bit by Wagner, but a lot of his career is also defining himself separately as a composer who who has his own ideas about how opera should be created. So it sounds like a little controversy sometimes helps sell a few tickets. <laughs> what is it that the expression, there's no such thing as bad publicity? <laughs> yes. I don't know about that, but it, there's a, there, yes, controversy does sell tickets. But, but the truth is once you get, you may be drawn in by the controversy, but when you get in there, this is a, a masterwork that all the great musicians defended against a lot of the critics who were scandalized by some of the action on stage, mm. 
The music is so densely composed. It's so exquisitely matched and contrasted during the the performance that this episode of Opera for Everyone will not do the music justice. You're going to get some snatches of beautiful music, but this is an opera that does need to be seen in its entirety. It's a one-act opera. It's about an hour and a half long. There's no intermission. The whole thing builds, and you go from lush beauty when that's called for to hard to listen to because there's something very ugly going on. It's, it's just, it's a masterwork that needs to be appreciated in full. We're just helping set you up for success in understanding what's going on. But please, if you have an opportunity to see Salome or watch a version of it, please do. And we'll do our best to also prepare you for all those parts that are a little controversial. <laughs> Indeed. We're Indeed. actually about to listen to the first of these most controversial conversations between Salome and Yochanan, John the Baptist. As we turn back to the opera, we'll hear Salome start to say things like, I'm in love with your flesh. Your flesh is white as the lilies upon a meadow. And as she praises and uh, speaks of the way that she is desiring John, each time John rebukes her, John insults her. Away, daughter of Babylon, he says. It is woman who brought evil to the world. Don't speak to me, for I shall not hear you. And then immediately, immediately, Salome says, your flesh is horrible. This flesh that she had just praised, it looks like the flesh of a leprous thing. And yet we repeat this cycle a few times with her. She she starts to walk away and then says, oh, oh, but your hair. And he insults her again. And so she says, well, your hair is hideous. And then your mouth, she praises how she wants to kiss John and, and let her taste John's mouth's kisses. He insults her again, mm-hmm. but she is fascinated. She is drawn in by being insulted, I guess. Well, she, to me, it, it feels like she's a young woman who has a lot of desires rolling around in her and she doesn't know what to do with them and she she expresses them really without self-censorship at all she just expresses them and then she responds to a perceived insult by him and it seems like part of this is that she is a princess and she's used to getting anything she wants and so to have this man indeed this man in a cage saying i don't want anything you have and to insult her she discovers a thing that many people discover oftentimes in their teenage years that it's the things that are hard to get that become the most irresistible i think we can get a little sense of this back and forth and the change of her attitude towards him as she's she sings i'm amorous of your body your body's hideous
You're listening to Richard Strauss's Salome on Opera for Everyone. I wanted to say just another word or two about this opera and its scandalous start in various cities. So the opera originally premiered in Dresden in 1905. In 1907, the New York Metropolitan Opera was preparing a production. And it wasn't terribly common then to have dress rehearsals where you invited patrons to watch, but they did do a special performance for the opera patrons, and they were shocked, shocked, shocked. Some of them were anyway, and most importantly, the daughter, daughter daughter-in-law of the chairman of the board Mm. said, this must not go ahead, Mm. and it was stopped. So there was this one preliminary performance that a select group of people got to see and it was clamped down. It was considered to just be too much to bear, and it wasn't until 1934 that there was a performance in New York by the Metropolitan Opera. London had its first performance in 1910, but it was with some changes. Remember we said that the Oscar Wilde play was banned for over 40 years in London, so the opera actually had a premiere before the Wilde play could be shown in London. 
but they had to make some changes. They could not use the name Yochanan. So it was not supposed to be John the Baptist that clearly. So he was simply called the prophet throughout. The setting was moved to Greece, and the scene at the end was very much softened by just showing a platter covered with a cloth. Huh. Wow. So we'll... We'll come back to that. Yeah, we'll remember that when we come to it. But it, it, it was a rocky... It was a rocky start, but all in keeping with the scandal and the buzz that surrounded this shocking new piece of of opera. But all of this only worked because of the enormous brilliance of Strauss in creating this work of art that just flows and uses an orchestra. It's a large orchestra, by the way, for a short opera. It's a, a huge orchestra, and it is exquisitely composed. So let's talk a little bit more about the action on stage. We've heard Zalame say she finds him attractive. She finds him hideous. What else is happening on the stage? Because I don't think it's just these two characters who are present at this time. So also on stage, as Salome is professing her attraction, her desire for Yochanan, for John the Baptist, is this regiment of guards. So there are guards for for either side of the well that John was held prisoner in. And there's also Narbo, the captain of the guard, who is infatuated with Princess Salome. Our opening singer. Yes. And he's the one that she flirted with to get John the Baptist out of the well and have this conversation. And so Narbo is watching her profess her desire physically for John, not for Narbo. For this guy who's been living his life recently at the bottom of a well, who probably doesn't look great. Exactly. (laughs) And in some productions, it's depicted with blindfolds and uh, handcuffs and dirty. And weeping sores. Oh, yes. And so Narbo starts jumping in. Wait, your highness, wait. Don't say those things. You are amazing. You are beautiful. Don't let him insult you like that. Let's leave. And she pays him no mind. She doesn't want she the nice guy. She does not want the nice captain of the guard who wants to <laughs> compliment her. At one point he says, you are the dove of all the turtle doves. You are a lovely oh. garden of scented myrrh. Yeah, that doesn't work for her, huh? Not enough. Not <laughs> enough. And so as he continues to hear her new fascination with John the Baptist... He gets really frustrated and kind of out of nowhere says, I can't bear to hear this anymore. And he plunges a sword into his own body. He kills himself right there on stage. And how does Salome react to that? She doesn't. She does not notice. That's really rough. Have you ever felt invisible to someone you had a crush on? Not that invisible. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. Folks will come in later to the scene and say, oh, hey, where's where's Narbo? Where's the captain of the guard? And Salome just couldn't tell you. <laughs> really rough. Yeah, well, that relationship was not for the long term. Instead, she is focused on John and she continues to ask him to kiss her and he continues to curse her until finally he says, you are cursed, Salome, and he heads back into the well. And that's the music that we're going to go out on. 
where she wants to kiss his mouth and he persists in his cursing of her and her family. Thank you.
listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright. I'm Grant. And I'm Jocelyn. Opera for Everyone airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts where you can find a rich trove of past episodes. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone, where we're listening to Richard Strauss. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by two guest hosts. Jocelyn. And Grant. Jocelyn and Grant, I'm so grateful to you for joining us for this episode of Opera for Everyone. It's so good to be here. We had to clear our busy schedules. Good, good. I'm glad you were able to do that. Well, before we go any further in our recording, I would like to let everyone know that we are listening to a recording that was made in 2016 at the Alta Opera Frankfurt, conducted by Andres Orozco Estrada. And we have the role of Salome being sung by Emily McGee. The role of Herod is sung by Peter Bronder. Michaela Schuster sings Herodias. Wolfgang Koch sings Jochenon, John the Baptist, and Benjamin Bruns sings Nereboth, the young Syrian captain of the guard. So here we are at the halfway point, and regular listeners to Opera for Everyone will know that it is time for... The Opera Helmet Quiz! All right, so since we've spoken, you and I, Jocelyn, that means Grant gets to do the quiz. Ooh! I love the Opera Helmet. It looks good on you. I hope you guys all at home are wearing your opera helmets. It's very important. It's a safety issue, and we take safety very seriously here in Opera for Everyone. You're stalling, Grant. (laughs) You better do it. Okay. Ask me questions. What has happened thus far in the opera? So far in the opera, the captain of the guard is in love with the princess, who doesn't love him back or even notice him. The princess is in love with the prophet, who not only doesn't regard her but in fact goes out of his way to insult her and meanwhile we've been told that the king is creepily leering at his stepdaughter the princess and so the princess insists on seeing john the prophet and john insults the princess salome the captain of the guard who's totally infatuated with salome ends up killing himself, and Salome does not even so much as notice. Is that more or less what happened so far? 
And the prophet John retreats willingly back into his cistern. Where he's being held captive as a prisoner by King Herod Antipas. Well, we're ready for scene three of... Did I I pass the opera helmet quiz? Jocelyn, what do you think? Solid B+. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So now we're ready to start scene four of our one-act opera. Scene four is long, but it is all one act, and it is the final act of our opera. At the beginning of scene four, we meet two new characters, new to the stage. We've been been hearing about them for a while. (laughs) Oh, yes. King Herod Antipas and his new wife, Herodias. These are the mother and stepfather of Salome, the princess, and they have also joined her on the terrace or in the courtyard of their palace. Along with lots of other party guests who emerge as well from this party. And they've been feasting and, dare I say, drinking a bit. Quite a bit. (laughs) Herod gets outside saying, where is Salome? Where is the princess? And Herodias starts to argue with him, asking him why he's paying attention to her daughter. And and he should stop paying attention to her daughter. Sounds like Herodias kind of has a point. As they're arguing, Herod and Herodias, he stumbles and he looks down and realizes that he stumbled in blood. He asks whose blood this is and finds out that it's Naraboth, the captain of the guard, who has killed himself. And Herod is confused at first because Herod knows that he orders a lot of people to be killed all the time and he can't really keep track, but he he's pretty sure he didn't ask that the captain of the guard be killed. And why is there a dead guy who Herod didn't order killed? To which he hears that Naraboth killed himself. Herod finds this curious and remembers <laughs> the longing glances that Naraboth looked at Salome with. And yet somehow doesn't learn the obvious lesson. Oh, interesting. Well, how would you describe that obvious lesson, Grant? Pining for Salome does not end well. And yet, you could argue rejecting Salome also does not end well. Mm. Salome's kind of trouble. Just like John the Baptist said. Herod doesn't know this, though. He calls Salome over and asks her to drink with him. She refuses, but he keeps asking he asks her to bring fruit she refuses and all the while herodias chirps in defending her daughter and telling her husband to behave himself yeah so let's hear a little bit of herod the tetrarch asking his stepdaughter to drink with him to bring him fruit and to do all the things that he'd like for her to do Thank you. 
opera for everyone and this is Richard Strauss's Salome. Besides Herod telling Salome all the things he would like from her, we hear Herodias trying to tell him to calm down and right there at the end we heard once again that voice, the voice of John the Baptist. Dum dum dum! We heard the voice of John the Baptist criticizing Herodias more directly and Herod And Herodias will say, my husband, aren't you going to defend me? Aren't you going to make him be quiet? Grant and Jocelyn, how does Herod respond to his wife's pleas to make John be quiet? Well, the honest truth is that he is afraid. He is afraid to silence John. And yet when Herodias accuses him of being afraid, he puffs up his chest and says, I am afraid of no one. In her discussion with Herod, Herodias proposes that John be handed over to the Jews, that is, the teachers and arguers of the law. But it's a funny thing that she doesn't say teachers and disputers of the law. She says the Jews. Of course, Herod and Herodias and Salome and indeed every other character we have met so far, save perhaps the captain of the guard, is at least notionally... Jewish. And yet repeatedly the experts in the law are referred to as being 
the Jews. There is some sense here in which Herod and Herodias and their court are in between the Jewish people who they notionally serve, represent, and are exemplars of, and the imperial power structures of which they are a part. That is, the Romans. And so the, the, the people who are called the Jews then descend into a, a bitter argument over the nature of John and the times that they live in, and the prophet Elijah, and what it means to see God. What do we see face to face, and what do we see only as a passing shadow? And we don't only have the Jews show up at this point. Pretty soon thereafter, we have two Nazarenes who come in. What's their role in the story? The Nazarenes introduce us to Jesus, who is living and working among the time that this opera is set. And so as this argument is happening among the Jewish leaders and teachers about who John the Baptist is and whether or not he's the prophet Elijah again or a prophet in his own right, we have the Nazarenes enter and describe the Messiah, Jesus, that the Savior, the Messiah, is here. They talk about the famous wedding in Cana story where Jesus turns water into wine. They talk about the healing miracles that Jesus has been doing. And Herod's response to all of this is, I forbid this man such a thing. And he even says it would be terrible if the dead came back to life. Herod's immediate response is this is dangerous. This yes. man must be apprehended. And the Nazarenes describe that Jesus is to be found in Samaria. And we all know in the back of our heads that this is the Herod, who is the guy in charge. At the end of Jesus's life, when Jesus is crucified, yeah. So here we have um, folks describing Jesus and Herod's immediate reaction, especially hearing that Jesus could possibly bring the dead to life, that that is terrifying and must he must be caught, he must be apprehended, which is ironic in the sense that as we look back upon these stories, the this piece that Herod is so frightened about with bringing the dead to life is literally what Jesus is most remembered for, coming back to life. And there's this funny irony with Herod, right, where he hears that there's someone running around bringing people back to life, and he says, I forbid it. It's of a piece with his, I didn't order this man killed, right? This is a man who thinks himself so powerful that he thinks he can forbid someone who has the power over death to do the things he's doing. And he thinks he has the power to grant life and death to anyone. And yet, right there next to him is his wife ordering him around and telling him what to do. Or trying to, at least. Right. And pretty soon we're going to hear from Yochanan again. Oh, yes. In the midst of this discussion about Jesus and about coming back to life, John is prophesying. John is describing the the changes that are going to happen in their world. Violence and battles are coming. And he continues to speak out against the daughter of Babylon, referring to Herodias. Both Herodias and the kingdom. So let's listen to a little bit of this dispute going on in in the post-party revelry, it's, it's an interesting contrast. These are people who have filled their stomachs, they've drunk wine, 
they're out getting fresh air and they're all having these very serious conversations. With John the Baptist periodically being heard from his captivity with his message. Oh! <laughs> 
for everyone, and we are deep into Strauss's Salome. So the guests and everyone at the court is out on the terrace, and it's become a little unpleasant because there's all this arguing about the law and the nature of what's going on, particularly with the captive, John the Baptist, chiming in to criticize. And Herod's pretty much had enough of this. He's done. He has decided that it is enough argument and conversation, and all he wants is for his stepdaughter to dance for him. Super not creepy. (laughs) Mm. So when he asks her to dance, and that's what we just heard right at the end there, she says, no, I will not dance. And Herodias, the mother laughs and said, well, see how well she obeys you? And as this conversation is going on, we hear the voice of John the Baptist, who is, who says to all, he shall be seated on the throne. He shall be clothed in scarlet and purple, and the angel of the Lord shall smite him. He shall be eaten with worms. Which brings us to the point of the importance of color in this opera, particularly White, often conflated with silver, red, and black. White, red, and black are again and again in different parts. Uh, We'll try to call it out here and there where it shows up, but we first saw this when Salome was describing her infatuation with John the Baptist, where she was admiring the whiteness of his flesh, the blackness of his hair, and the redness of his lips. And... The vividness of these colors points both to the vividness of the reality that they cannot see, whether that is the blood of the guard on the ground or the clarity of the moon in the sky, and to that which is unreal. 
their fantasies and their dreams. The wild vision that Salome has of John, where she sees something beautiful in him, but is unable to see that what is beautiful about him is not his appearance, but the fact that he is standing there begging her to change her ways and find a way to evade the doom that awaits her and her family. Herod, too, lives in a fantasy. Herod is asking, begging, demanding a dance from Salome. And even as she denies him and Herodias laughs at him and it describes how inappropriate it is for Salome to do some sultry dance for him, he still lives in that fantasy, that vision of Salome dancing. And so he promises her anything she wants. Yeah, he decides to change his tactic. Instead of just begging her to do it, he decides it's time to negotiate. If you dance for me, Salome, you may ask of me whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And now she's interested. Now she's in a negotiation. Now there's some bargaining to be done. And her mother gets ever more concerned. Mm Mm-hmm. But she takes the bait, Salome. And she makes her stepfather swear that whatever it is she asks, he will give her. She's a, a shrewd negotiator. And she knows what she wants. But she's not going to tell us yet. First, she'll dance. He even gets to the point where he says, that's fine. I swear. I swear I'll give you whatever you want. Even up to half of my kingdom. You'll be the queen. You can have it all. I'm sure that made Herodias angry. You see how desperate and extreme his passion is for this young woman. And he pays no mind to his wife. Mm Mm-mm. And he and Salome are strictly focused on each other during this negotiation. And she finally says, and right after her mother says, don't do it, she says, I will dance for you then. And this is a pretty famous dance, isn't it, Pat? The infamous dance of the seven veils. Let's listen to it. Yes, this is, this is a, a lengthy piece purely instrumental while she's dancing and it'll be depicted in a lot of different ways which we can talk about later but fundamentally it's meant to be an unveiling entirely of Salome until she's just dancing naked.
That was the dance of the seven veils from Richard Strauss's Salome. Jocelyn, could you tell us a little bit about what this dance entails? The dance of the seven veils is Salome finally saying yes to the king, her stepfather's entreaties for her to dance for him. And we hear in this a sultry, seductive question. The dance of the seven veils is a Striptease. These are seven veils, seven pieces of clothing that she is taking off. Different opera houses have done this in a variety of ways. Also depending on what the singers are willing to do. <laughs> yeah. But this was a lot of the early controversy about this opera was how they were doing the dance of the seven veils. How how much clothing was coming all the way off of their main lead soprano. I find it fascinating that Strauss, in writing about this as he was passing it to different opera houses, was very clear that this should be no flirting with Herod, no playing to John's well, only a moment's pause beside the well at the end, purely oriental dance, serious and measured and thoroughly decent as though it were being done on a prayer mat. That's how Strauss described it. And oh, not how we've always seen it. Not though, is it? how we see it today. Um, some opera companies will have this be prop veil pieces, not actual pieces of clothing. Some companies will have her take off most of the clothing, but leave on a dress. And some Opera houses will go full out where every piece of clothing is coming off of the soprano. And what I have found also fascinating about this is the sopranos in opera are not necessarily dancers. And they're especially not necessarily seductive dancers. But the opera companies commit, at least the videos from different opera houses that I have seen in the Dance of the Seven Veils, these singers give it their all. They are committing to a sultry, seductive, sexy dance on stage for 10 whole minutes. This is where the acting of the singer 
really shines because these people are actors mm-hmm. as well as singers when they yeah. perform opera. And you have the lecherous leers of Herod. You have all the emotions that are going through Herodias. And you have Salome completely inhabiting her role. It's You're in the story. You're in the moment. We were watching one of the productions, and I was amazed by the way that the physicality of the Salome character was portrayed. The soprano was not a particularly young woman, but somehow she was able to channel not only a youth, but an almost girlishness, kicking her legs the way that you might expect of a character of the age of Salome. And there was something I think very effective about doing that because it gets across the the power that she's coming into despite herself, and yet also the fact that she is immature and impulsive in the way that only someone who has not seen very much of the world yet can possibly be. There is that uncomfortableness about the Dance of the Seven Veils when we remember that this character is a teenager being asked to strip, maybe, by her stepfather, who happens to be the ruler with the highest power in their region. And I wonder about the cities that banned this opera because of that incestuous nature. When this is all done, Herod is quite pleased with what he's seen. Mm-hmm. But the negotiation's not over between these two characters. Because now's the time for her to tell him what she wants for that dance. Exactly, and she does. What does she want for this dance, Jocelyn? The head of John the Baptist on a silver platter.
Ich bin sicher, es wird ein Unheil geschehen. Well, you're listening to Salome on Opera for Everyone, and Salome is telling Herod that she wants what she wants, which is the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. And contrary to what her mother was saying prior to the dance, no daughter, don't do it. Now that she's made Herod uncomfortable by this request, she's being egged on by her mother. She's laughing in the face of her own husband. She's telling her daughter, yeah, you get what you want from him. You get that. Good girl. Because she has been so consistently insulted by John the Baptist, she sees this as her daughter getting revenge on her behalf. Though as audience members, we feel that we've seen a little greater insight to her motivations with her huge attraction to John. And the way he rejected her. Yes, So Herod is deeply uncomfortable with this request, and he tries everything to bribe her into some other more lucrative prize for her cooperation. But she's determined, and she will not give up. And ultimately, he has no choice but to relent. So is this, my biblical scholars, I'm asking you both, is this true to the story that's presented in the Gospels? No. Well, sort of. So. (laughs) Explain yourself. It's a complicated story. And truth be told, it's a story that has two layers on which it's operating. On the simplest possible level, this is the kind of story that gets told with less salacious details. This is the kind of story that gets told by kings who want to kill people and not have to face consequences for having killed the people. Remember, oh. John the Baptist was someone Herod wanted to kill and couldn't because he was too popular among the people. And all of a sudden, a story comes out about how Herod had to do it. He gave his word. It was the only honorable thing to do. So, like, we can raise an eyebrow at that level. Beyond that, there is the story that is actually recounted in the Gospels. And the essence there is that it is not Salome, but rather Herodias, who is in control. It is Herodias who has been personally insulted by John, and it is Herodias who makes the arrangements such that John will pay with his life. Because Herodias is the named character in the biblical account, and Salome is not. She's just the daughter. Right, exactly. Right, she's the daughter of Herodias. Uh, on some level, there's a there's a deep truth there because it seems almost morally irresponsible to assign a lot of agency to this teenage girl in this situation. It seems almost morally irresponsible to say she was in full knowledge and full control and her role in this, this creepy, lecherous, incestuous situation was something that she is responsible for. But at the same time, What Oscar Wilde is trying to do and what this play is trying to do is to give her agency and to treat her as a character who is in command. And so in this version of the story, Herod is in many ways quite weak and Herodias is undeniably quite weak. And the most powerful thing Herodias manages to do is mock Herod for the fact that his daughter won't obey him. And of course, as always in this 
play, it's precisely when people refuse to do what they're asked that the person who asks becomes completely obsessed and insistent. That Herod wants yes. the idea that he can't control his uh, stepdaughter has been put in his brain. He, he can't let go of it in spite of it meaning ultimately ruin for him. As a historical note, ruin is what came to them. Ultimately, they burned away every last card they had to play, and Herod and Herodias lost their kingdom and died in exile in Spain, as far away as you could get the other end of the empire. This is Richard Strauss's Salome on Opera for Everyone, and Salome has gotten her wish. The king has capitulated. He has handed his ring to the executioner who goes in to find John and do as Salome has ordered, sever his head and put it on a silver platter. I just want to make one other comment about this depiction of Salome as being the one with the agency, making the decisions, driving the plot. It's part of that late 19th century fascination with the character of Salome that mm -hmm. we spoke about earlier, yeah. that she falls into this well-populated category of women who have been held responsible historically for leading men astray yeah and speaking biblically we could just reference eve while we're at it yep so it's it's an interesting depiction of a woman to to take the biblical account where yes it's herodias who seems to be 
directing Salome's actions, but Herod is not an impotent man. Herod is someone with great power who could call the shots as he wanted. So to, to make him this weakling, essentially, in this depiction is to propagate and continue this myth of the women who are the ones getting in the way of men behaving morally. Yes. Yeah. Well, there was my sermon. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Pat. And I find it fascinating to watch this uh, agency, no agency, power, no power dynamic happen, even to the point of madness as John the Baptist's head is being brought to Salome on a silver platter. We don't see a woman in control or with a lot of agency and power. We instead see a crazed person. She addresses the head. She she talks or sings to the head of John the Baptist with triumph but despair, with regret and then she quite literally kisses the mouth on the severed head of john the baptist ew getting herself ever more covered in blood as she does this yeah so you can understand what some of the people were raising objections to they found this a little distasteful i can completely understand the cities that banned this from their plays and opera houses but this is honest and frightening in its reality. Yeah, Herod is pretty much disgusted at this point because he felt compelled to stand by his promise to give her whatever she wanted, thinking she'd want wealth or power. And instead, she she wanted this object of her desire, this mouth she kept begging to kiss. She finally has an opportunity to kiss his lifeless severed head and she does and the 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 Nazarenes fall on their knees and pray and Herodias thinks this is kind of funny and Herod is is doesn't even know what to think it's all pretty awful to him and lurking over all of this is that thing that Herod forbade the terrifying vision of the dead coming back to life. In the biblical account, this is related right after rumors have begun to circulate that John the Baptist has come back to life. And you start to see in this moment why a man like Herod would be so afraid that the dead would come and bring the living to account. Consumed by his horror, Herod orders that Salome be punished, and not just punished, killed, and not just killed, but crushed to death underneath the shields of the soldiers. Well, that wraps up the story of Salome. Jocelyn and Grant, thanks so much for joining us on Opera for Everyone today. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright. And I'm Grant. I've never been to Asia. I've seen Asia. I've been to Istanbul and looked across the waters longingly. But one of these fine days, I shall go to Earth's largest continent. And I'm Jocelyn. I can dance, but with no more than three veils. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Opera can be challenging, but everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable, because we believe opera is for everyone. Opera is for everyone. Opera is for everyone. One, one.